The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. What a great reminder as we sing that we have no hope outside of the righteousness of Christ. And, uh, and I know how uh, quickly my heart um, is drawn to, to trust in other things. And it is a great reminder for all of us, um, you know, myself particularly, this you to, to join me in Exodus. We're going to continue as we walk through the book of Exodus in chapter 19. And uh, last week, Pastor Scott began the first six verses, and, and today we're going to continue. We're going to kind of pick up the baton there and, and finish out the chapter. And I just want, as you're, as you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to preface what we're going to say by asking you a couple of questions. When you think of God, does he seem to you near? Or does he seem to you very far, uh, very distant, almost inaccessible? Uh, And I understand that at different points of your week or at different points of your life, different seasons that you happen to be walking in, the answer to that question might be different. There are times in our lives when God seems close there are times in our lives when God seems far, but, but what I'm asking you is, is, about, is a question about his character. Is he a God who is distant? Is he a God who is far off? Or is he a God who is close, who is concerned, who is personal? A.W. Tozer said this. He said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So as we look to Exodus 19, I think we're going to have a a very clear picture, certainly a biblical picture of how God presents himself uh, and how we should relate to him. So please join me as we look to Exodus 19, uh, beginning in in verse 7. And of course, what we have seen from last week is that the people are approaching the mount, uh, the mountain, Mount Sinai. And, um, and all of this is in preparation for God to give to Moses the Ten Commandments. And, um, and we see that God is speaking to Moses about things, about how his people, the people of Israel, should relate to him. And he picks up here in verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down uh, on Mount Sinai and and in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or to even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they will come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and and he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman, 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast uh, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up and bring Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and he told them. Let's pray. Lord, we see a passage of your scripture that that reveals things about your nature, and I pray, Lord, that we would remove all distractions in our mind right now and allow us to see you as you are. I pray, Lord, that you would do this by your Holy Spirit, that you would make little of me and make much of your word and much of your son, Jesus, this morning. I ask in your name. Amen. It seems appropriate as we begin to discuss uh, our, our culture and how perhaps our culture has tempered or has influenced the way that we look at our God. The God that I just read about is not user-friendly. The God that I just read about is not the, um, is not the God that you want to read about, I suppose, at least at first glance, when you want to feel the warm fuzzies. And, and we have to answer the question, is this God as he is? Is this his nature? Has he changed? Or is he just this God who who resides on top of the mountain and he's far away and only certain special people can come to him and um, and whatever the case may be? Um, We we live in a time, I was speaking about our culture, we live in a time of great comfort and of great convenience. We we have the luxury of preference in our country. We, We live in the land of Quick Trip and Amazon. And I recently was talking with my wife, Whitney, and she was uh, telling her kids about how it looks like they're on track to, at the end of the school year, have an ice cream party. And it looks like they'll be able to have ice cream sandwiches. And a certain kid in her class expressed disgust at, at the choice of the ice cream. And Whitney and I were talking about that, not like trying to slam this little girl down, because, I mean, we, we all, we're all here in the same boat in the, you know, first world. And, um, and, and we, we just kind of marveled at how um, when, when recently we were in Peru, if you just give some of those Peruvian kids a crayon that is broken, it is like Christmas Day times 10 to them. And we have kids who, who get disgusted at the kind of ice cream that they're going to get. Um, you know, forget the fact that they're getting ice cream. And so what we have is we have a culture, I think, that has kind of, uh, that, that might have influenced, if we're honest with ourselves, the way that we think about God. 
that we kind of think about God as, as um, simply someone who is near. He's kind of like a, an app on our phone that we can pull up and, and just, just kind of, uh, you know, sashay into his presence, and it's okay. And that is not the picture of God that we see here. We see a God who is, who is holy, who is set apart, and, and that is the, uh, the God that we are going to discuss today. And that is my first point. Let's look um, really at verse 9, but point number 1 is that God, as he is, in his character, in his nature, God is holy and must conceal himself. God is holy and he must conceal himself. He is, in a sense, set apart. Holy, of course, means to be other or to be set apart or to be separate. And just as God said to the people of Israel, and as he reiterated in the New Testament, as I am holy, you be holy. God says, this is who I am. This is my nature. We see, how he, we see this in how he appears to people. Notice how he appears to the people here. How he appeared to them in a cloud. He could not reveal to them the fullness of who he is. He could not show them the fullness of his glory because it would be too much. It says this in verse 9, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. It's reminiscent of how he came to Moses in the burning bush. Fire seems to be this image that he uses often. I I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. We see a picture of God who, who must conceal himself, but at the same time, look at, look at this in in its seed form, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that you may hear when I speak with you. We see both sides of this coin, that God must con conceal himself, but he is still a God who wants to speak to his people and who wants to make truth about himself known. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and you may also believe forever. We see it in how... Um, and how God reacted to Moses. Uh, I would like for, for really two questions to, to govern uh, the way that we think about ourselves in, in relation to God. And question number one is, do you want to meet with God? Question number two is, do you know what you are asking for? I think that we know the answer to question number one. Clearly, we are people. We want to know God. The fact that you are here this morning. I mean, it shows that for whatever reason, whether you're here for the first time trying to figure out what, what Christians believe, what the Bible says, or whether you've been here for generations and you're trying to, to, to raise up your own family in the way that the Lord would, would have you do that, you, you want to know God. But I wonder if we know, do we know what we're asking for? When we say, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. Do we know the gravity of that statement. And of course, Moses, uh, God reacted to Moses when Moses um, uh, answered this question. He said, God, I do want to see you. Show me your glory. In Exodus 33, I'll just read this, Exodus 33, beginning in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you. This is God speaking. And I will give you rest. And he said to him, if, this is Moses speaking, if your presence will, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? In verse 17, I'll skip a verse here. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for, I have found, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, 
Clearly, Moses does not know the full weight of what he's asking here. But God, being gracious, says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This is our God. He is holy. He is set apart. And if we should think that we could just sashay into his presence and see him as he is and live, we are woefully mistaken if we try to do that in ourselves. God is holy and must conceal himself. But secondly, we see this. Perhaps a little bit of logic behind this first point is that people are sinful and must prepare themselves. Notice how God calls the people to prepare themselves. Uh, In in verse 8, we see though uh, their sin and how they are a little naive about their sin. Verse 8 says this, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Has this ever been true in the history of Israel or in the history of humanity? Where the people come before God and say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I mean, have they not seen, have they not met themselves? Have they not thought about their history and how at every point in history they stop at a particular geographical place and take time to grumble against the Lord? They ask God for drinking water when just days ago he had parted a river. I think God's got the water thing under control. But they come to to Moses and they say, has God just brought us out here to kill us? Assuming that God has bad motives. That God would do that. That he's just the big man in the sky with the magnifying glass. He's going to bring you to a different geographical place and then kill you. And that's not how God is. But he is holy. And the people, though, are sinful. People are sinful and must prepare themselves. And notice their sin means that God must set limits around the mountain. Verses 12 and 13, it says this, and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. The person who does this, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And he reiterates this two more times. In one chapter of our text, God has to tell the people three times, remember, don't come to the mountain because you can't stand. Moses, remind the people. Remind the people, Moses. Don't touch the mountain. Don't even come close. It reminds us of of 1 Timothy 6.16, which I actually read as, as part of our prayer this morning, that God dwells in inapproachable or, or unapproachable light. He cannot be approached. And we see this picture of his holiness in 2 Samuel 6. Remember when, when God gave specific commands about how the ark was to be transported. And they put it on the back of this little carriage. And a, a man named... Um, Uzzah was charged with riding along with it, but he was not to touch the ark because the ark represented the presence of God. Just as the people of Israel here are not to touch the mountain because that's where God is, Uzzah nor any of the other people accompanying this little cart, this, this, this carriage, were not to touch the ark. 
and they, they hit a rock or they hit a, a bump in the road and the ark goes to slip and, and just out of reaction, Uzzah reaches out to grab it, to stop it from, from hitting the ground and he is struck dead in an instant. And we, we, we think about, wow, this, this, this God is harsh. He seems, he seems unloving. It's not that God is harsh. The fact that he allowed Uzzah, a sinner, to even breathe life. To even breathe oxygen is a measure of his grace. But he must maintain his own holiness to show what it means to know him. We see this, uh, of course, Moses reminded uh, his people two other times. But, but it conveys this idea. Conveys this idea that God is so holy that his presence, when not shielded, brings death. God's presence, his very being here. When not shielded, it brings death. And notice, uh, I would like to, to include a note here just about the people um, that we should take note of. The, the Israelites here, if you haven't picked up on this, they are not exactly, on the whole, spiritual stalwarts. These are not like the Billy Grahams of their day, all living together. They, they are uh, very much... Uh, given to not trusting God and, and uh, some of the people that I have read in, in studying for this uh, sermon have said that the reason that God uh, told Moses to set up the boundaries around the mountain was not because that there are, there's just this abundance of Israelites who would love to, to break through to the mountain and to go see God. It's that they would probably just kind of forget or not take Moses and God seriously and just kind of wander in. Idle curiosity, not a desire to know God or a desire for holiness, but just this idle curiosity. And what a word for us that, that we may have God's holiness always before us when we sing to him and when we pray to him. I pray, and I know, we may dress casually, we may speak to one another in a casual way. You know, we, we don't have like the big pipe organs and the liturgy and the, you know, we're up and down doing all of these calisthenics and stuff. But, but let, let, while we may not have a, uh, a very formal form to what we do, make no mistake, the way that we come to God should never be casual. We must come to him as this God this God who says, you, you don't even know what you are asking for when you say, show me your glory. Our culture, of course, has, has tempered this. I think, and, and you know, I, I love Ronald Reagan. And I listened, I, I, hopefully this summer, I love the summer because I get to read a little more. And I'm hoping I'll be able to finish another biography that has just come out. Uh, but uh, just a little thing about me, but I, I list, I've listened to a couple of Ronald Reagan's uh, uh, speeches that he's given. And in 1964, in the Barry Goldwater uh, campaign, he gave a speech that, is, that has become uh, very pivotal to understanding um, politics in America. And it's called A Time for Choosing. And if you listen to, to this Speech. If you li listen to, to how he speaks, and, and even even um, John F. Kennedy gave a gave a speech in December of 1962, uh, shortly before he died, of course, uh, in 63. And the way that these people spoke, 
is so, so different from what we're used to. Of course, now our leaders just kind of figure out the, the best third grade epithet they could, you know, you know cast toward, toward their opponent now. But, but our, our culture has become very casual. And I pray that the way that we approach God would not become casual. That we would not allow it to, to, uh, to influence that. Secondly, the, sinful, the sinfulness of people means death in the presence of God. And of course, we, we've talked about this, at least in part. It, but, but it shows us this reality. When we see how far our sin separates us from God, we will be moved to worship Him rightly because of how far He has brought us back. You will always worship God in a way that is proportional to how far you think he's brought you back. If you think that, that God has, has brought you literally from hell to grace, then you will worship him as if he has. But if you think, and I'm not talking about the way that we, we talk, I'm talking about the way in our hearts, when we're at our worst, if you think that God really, there are some people out in the world that God really hasn't had to expend a lot of grace on, He's really had to expend a lot of grace on. I'm not one of them. You know, he, he's, I mean, he had to do the whole thing, you know, saving me. You know, I, I said the prayer and stuff. But, you know, man, I mean, there's some people God really had to bring a long way. You will only worship God in relation to how far you think he's brought you back. And we see this, of course, in Luke 7, uh, 36. Um, Jesus, of course, interacting with a woman here. In Luke chapter 7, I'll read this. You don't necessarily have to turn there. Um, it'll, it'll be on the, on the screen. Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him to sit with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he took a place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. This is another example of a person who doesn't know what he's asking for. A certain moneylender had two debtors. He goes on to tell this little parable. And he said, who is more gracious? The person who's been forgiven a million dollars. I'm just updating the language. I'm just speaking colloquially here. Who is the person who's, who's, who feels more forgiven and who's more thankful? The person who's been forgiven a million dollars or ten dollars? He says, of course, a person who's been forgiven a debt of a million dollars. He says, so is this woman. So is this woman. And let me, let me say to us that we need to hear this. The only difference between the woman and the Pharisee is attitude. The only difference between the woman and the Pharisee is how they see themselves. Because they are both just as wickedly and as desperately sinful as the other. One just thinks they're not. That's the only difference. And we must see ourselves in light of this. But sinfulness of people means death in the presence of God. It would be like a tourist of Washington, D.C. coming up to the, to the gates and they don't realize that this big white house 
on Pennsylvania Avenue is, is home to the president. And they just say, hey, I'm just going to kind of hop the fence here and, and run through the, through, the, through the grass and meet the person who owns this home. Because, you know, while I'm a tourist, let's might as well do this. And, and when they cross the fence, uh, you know, they, they jump the fence and then they get jumped, you know, by some people in suits and tactical gear. And, and, the, and the tourist is incredulous and says, you know, why? Why can't I be here on this grass? You know, and, and the person says, do you know who lives here? Secret Service says, do you know in, whom, in whose presence you're trying to enter? It could bring death if you make it far enough. The sinfulness of people means death in the presence of God. Entering God's presence also, thirdly, a little third little sub-point here. Entering God's presence requires Purity. It requires being made pure. And we see this uh, in verses 10 and 11. Look in verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them and make them holy and make them clean. Consecrate them today. Set them aside and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. This image is very pervasive throughout Scripture. It runs all the way through. And we see in the book of Revelation, the people, the saints, those who have been martyred, it says, their garments have been washed. And we say, and we see here, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people. Entering God's presence requires being made pure, being washed. We see this in the temple. If you know uh, about the temple in the Old Testament, one of the first things that you would approach when you were entering the temple, you would come into this little kind of vestibule place and there would be this bowl and in the bowl would be water. And this thing was called the laver. And what you would do first is you would come and symbolically take some of that water and wash your hands, symbolizing before I go any further, before I enter into the presence of God, I must be made clean. It was a, an act of worship, recognizing that I am impure and I am about to enter the presence of the holy. Entering God's presence requires purity. Now, I, I would take you to, to verse 22, lastly here, before we, we move on, that no one is exempt. No one is exempt from being made pure. It says in verse 22, also let the priests who come near, let the priests who come near consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them that there is no one who is exempt from needing to be made clean. Even these people who are called priests, these people who, who their job is to somehow do religious things, let them be made clean, lest the Lord break out against them. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Thirdly, last point, and this is the glorious point. God is merciful and chooses to reveal himself. The same God who conceals also reveals. The same God who must be separate has made himself near to the sinner. The same God who should not be able to be in the presence of sinners without the sinners dying. He has made himself approachable. And we see this here. If we, um, by the way, don't have a vision or a picture of the God who is far off and inaccessible to us, the gospel will never be sweet to us because we'll just take it for granted. 
It won't seem like a big thing that God has made himself close if we don't have this picture that it should not be this way. It should not be this way that we are able to pray and expect God to hear us. It should not be this way that we can live our lives and expect that at the end of them, because we have been made right by Jesus, of course that makes it right, but, but this thing that seems so casual to us, it should not be this way that we are able to live with God because he is holy. But when we get a picture of this God who is far off and inaccessible, it makes our worship of Jesus sweet because he has made that access possible in his body and in his life and in his work. We see it in God's desire to speak to people, even though through a cloud, he still wants to have communion with his people. We see it in the burning bush. God wanted to speak. He wanted to give his people a word. We see it in the tabernacle, this thing that they had to lug around through the wilderness, this big tent. God wanted to reside with his people. We see it in the temple. God wanted to be with his people. And finally, we see it in Jesus, the God-man. God himself took on flesh and lived among his people. The supreme expression of God's heart toward revealing himself to his people is seen in a mediator. And of course, we we actually talked about this this morning in Sunday school uh, with the students, that a mediator is, of course, a a go-between. Moses served as this go-between. We see all, all of the time the people coming to Moses with a complaint about God. And then God, Moses turning and saying, God, what am I going to do? God saying, Moses, tell the people this. Moses turning around and telling the people what it is that they need to hear. God using this, this mediator. And many times as we see time and time again, the mediator is the one who separated the people from the judgment that they deserved. That Moses stood in between them and pled on behalf of the people saying, Lord, don't break out against your people. But we have today a true and better Moses. Not a man merely, but a perfect man. A man who is 100% man and 100% God who has walked the earth and knows what it is to suffer and to experience temptation, although he is without sin, but a man who is also 100% God and who can plead our case before the very throne of God. He He can go past the barriers. He can ascend the mountain, as it were, and he can say, Father, have mercy on them. And the Father listens. God making Moses a a mediator sets us up to realize that this this Moses kind of mediator, this this having these judges and these kings and these prophets, it's not going to work forever. We need a true and better Moses. And indeed, we begin to yearn for one. Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6, um, make this so very clear. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, it says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this, that we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer up gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The the judges, the kings, the good ones at least, the prophets, Moses, the mediators, serve as a copy as a shadow of the one that we need, Jesus. A copy and a shadow, he says here. For when Moses was about to set up the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you. But as it is Christ, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. And as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And this is a glorious truth. We see also just above that in in chapter 7, the last couple verses of chapter 7 of of Hebrews. It says, For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. How has Jesus eradicated the curse in our lives? By becoming a curse himself. That we can have access. While God's unshielded presence brings death to sinners, Christ himself, though, embodied the presence of God and brought life. Isn't this so backwards? And we see this in Colossians 2.9. It says, Colossians Uh, For in him the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You mean to tell me that the same God who should not be able to be in the presence of sinners without them dying, he has made himself close. The fullness of, of deity dwells in Christ's body and he walked among us. It says in uh, Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I love how it says that. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So while God's unshielded presence should bring death to sinners, in Christ his presence brings life. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. So let me end in this way. That God, of course, in his nature is holy and set apart and he should not be able to be approached. But because of his love for sinners like you and like me, because of his love, he who dwells in inapproachable light has made himself approachable in Christ. He who should not be able to be seen has made himself visible in Christ. He who deserved to kill us because of our sin put his son to death because of our sin. And he stands ready to forgive and to bring life. And I hope, and I hope, that, I hope that you hope that you see, you see him as that kind of God. Now I'm aware of what he's saying. I'm aware that there are different personalities in this room, and because of, of our personalities, we are given to understand God in different ways. Some of you, you you see God as if he is merely the God who is far off and inaccessible, and you feel like you could never attain to that. You could never could never do enough to, to make him pleased with you, and, and, and you live a lot of your life in guilt 
And you live a lot of your life in uncertainty and, and not glorying in the acceptance that you have in God. And I would say to you, if you are that person, then, and you think that God is, is holy and far off and inaccessible, I, I guess I've got good news. You're right. He is holy and far off and inaccessible, but you're only half right. The same God who is that way has made himself near to you. And I want nothing more than for those of you who find yourself in that situation, in that, in that mindset, to not only grieve over your sins, which is right, but to understand that you have been made right by a God who loves you and by a God who has made the impossible possible through Christ, through the God-man. Understand that there is a gospel, there is a good news, and his name is Jesus. He has made an end of your separation from God, and there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. I pray that you could, that you could preach that to yourself, and I pray, that, I pray that God's Spirit would minister that truth to your life so that you would not live in some kind of anti-gospel bondage, only understanding half of the story. Others of you... Uh, others of us, really, I shouldn't say you, others of us um, are given, as we discussed, because of our culture perhaps, because of, of our sin, we're given to treat God, to approach Him very casually, to, to not take into account His otherness. Um, I, 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 would like, I, I would encourage you to understand that it is not for nothing that you have been brought near. While it may seem good to, to not reflect on God as, as far away, understand that as we said earlier, your worship will be limited. Your worship will be limited by how you conceive, how you think of how far you've been brought. So let me encourage you to, to and, and I say this cautiously, and I, and I, and I encourage you to do this in, within reason and in a gospel framework, to think on your sins and to consider how far it is that you have been brought and to believe the Bible that even though perhaps you have never ventured into some dark, you know, house of the rising sun type of lifestyle, that you were dead. You were dead in your sins and in your trespasses and sins. And before Christ, you did walk in a way that was contrary to him, living out the lusts of your flesh Understand that, and it will cause you to worship God in such a way that is full of gratitude because you see that he did actually do a work. He brought you a long way. And thirdly, for those of you who, you know, for whom this is all new and strange, let me encourage you to see this story and, and this narrative as your story and your narrative, that you are part of this. That there is a God who is far off and who is to you unapproachable because your sin has made you unapproachable and unpleasing to him. But see also that this God, for his because of his love for you and because of his love for sinners, he has made himself near in Christ. And the separation does not have to be your story. The closeness can be. Pray with me. Lord, you're good, and you show us in your word 
true things about you that are, of course, imperfectly conveyed by a person like me, but I pray this morning that your gospel will have been made much of, that, that we should do away with these thoughts that we are owed heaven. We should do away with these thoughts that we are owed access to you and that we should see that you are the God who, who is far off. And God, I pray that 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 reality would cause us to to worship you more because we see how far you have brought us. I pray that we could could see that because of Jesus' righteousness, because of the work that he has accomplished, we can enter your throne room. We can pray to you as I am doing now. We can sing to you and expect that you will hear us, but not because of our goodness, because of the goodness of Jesus. I pray that if there is one who, who this story seems altogether new and seems altogether, but it seems good, that they have located themselves in this story, that there is a God who is, who is holy, but they are not. And they need to be reconciled. They need to be made right. They, just as the Israelites, they need to be purified before they can meet God. I pray they would come and do that today. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. If you are in that category, if you would like to... Uh, approach God somehow. If you would like to talk to myself or Pastor Scott in any way, please know that we are available. There are people just outside these doors in a prayer room who would love to pray with you if you have needs, but I encourage you to to do um, as the Spirit leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.